Welcome to the Bedford Alliance Church Bible Reading Plan Podcast. I'm Luke Cugino, your discipleship pastor and host. This podcast follows along with our church-wide reading plan, which walks you through the entire New Testament and gives you an overview of the Old Testament. Join us as we dive into God's life-changing Word together. Well, hello and welcome back to the podcast. Believe it or not, we are down to two books left in our New Testament reading plan. We've made it through 25 of the 27 New Testament books. And now we just have the book of Revelation and the Gospel of Matthew. But they are both longer books, so they will take us through the rest of the year. And this week we're going to begin our dive into Revelation. We're going to introduce it today. And this one is a doozy. And without a doubt, this is the New Testament book that people have the most questions about. And it's also the New Testament book that people tend to be most drawn to because many people tend to think that we're nearing the end times. So they want to know what to expect. What is this going to look like? How close are we to the end times? But I think sometimes our desire to have our questions answered about the future can cause us to miss the main point of Revelation. But more on that in a little bit. First of all, again, just to introduce the book of Revelation here, the word Revelation actually comes from the very first Greek word in this book, Apocalypsis. And that's where we get our word Apocalypse from. And this word means to uncover or to reveal. So this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And by the way, it's Revelation singular, not Revelations, plural, just a a pet peeve of mine. So this is a, this book is a revelation of Jesus. He's the ultimate subject matter of this book, but it's also a revelation from Jesus Christ. So it's revelation of Jesus and from Jesus, because this is a message from Jesus to John. Although sometimes it's also given through an angel. So it's a revelation of Jesus and from Jesus. And that's where the name revelation comes from. And right off the bat in this book, we, we see what kind of literature this is. It's, it's an apocalypsis. It's apocalyptic literature. But what does that mean? Well, apocalyptic literature, is a, it's a type of prophecy that uses imagery and symbols to describe future destruction and and disaster, oftentimes events surrounding the end of the world. Another way of saying it is that apocalyptic literature is a supernatural unveiling of what is about to take place. And we see this type of literature in parts of the Old Testament. You see it in Ezekiel, in Daniel, in Zechariah, and you see it in other parts of the New Testament as well. For example, in Matthew 24 or Mark 13. And since this is apocalyptic literature in Revelation, we know that we can expect the heavy use of symbols. So as you're going to see, many events are described using metaphors, things like dragons and beasts and a woman clothed with the sun. But understand these are are symbols, not literal depictions. So these are symbols of real things but they're not intended to be literal descriptions. Symbolism is part of this genre of literature. Now, as far as the author of this book, the author identifies himself as John, 
And some people have tried to say that this is a different John than the one who wrote the Gospel of John. They'll refer to him as John the Elder. But there's really no reason to think that this is a different John. Because first of all, the author doesn't mention his authority to write this letter, which means he was probably well-known and and a person of prestige. And that description best fits the Apostle John. And also the testimony of the early church fathers overwhelmingly points to the Apostle John as the author. The only church father who disputed that was Eusebius, but he had reason to not want John to be the author, John the Apostle, to be the author because he was biased against the book. He didn't really want it to be part of Scripture because he wasn't a big fan of apocalyptic literature. So there's really no good reason to think that the Apostle John wasn't the author. Another thing you'll hear people say sometimes is how the style of Revelation is very different from the Gospel of John, so he couldn't have been the the author, couldn't have been the same author. But we have to keep in mind, first of all, the vocabulary between the two isn't really that different. And any stylistic differences really comes down to the difference in genre between the two. Because the gospel is more of a historical narrative, it's a biography. Revelation, on the other hand, is apocalyptic literature, which is very different. So I I think the stylistic differences come down to the difference in genre, not the difference in author. Now, John likely wrote this letter in the late 90s AD. So scholars dispute whether this was written in the 60s or the 90s AD, which might seem like random dates to dispute. But we know it was written during a time of persecution. And the two most likely times of persecution were either under Emperor Nero in the 60s or Emperor Domitian in the 90s. But we have early church testimony that Revelation was written under the reign of Domitian. And another interesting tidbit, in chapter 3, Revelation refers to Laodicea as a rich city, as a wealthy city. And we know that Laodicea was devastated by an earthquake right around 60 or 61 AD. So the 60s AD would have been too early for this city to recover. So we know pretty almost certainly that this letter was written in the late 90s AD when John was an older man. And we know from Revelation 1-9 that John wrote this letter while he was exiled to the island of Patmos. Now Patmos is a, a small Greek island in the Aegean Sea. And John was sent there for his faith, for his work in spreading the gospel. Now, understand in the Roman Empire, like we've talked about at different times, there were different provinces, different regions, and the governor of each province could exercise his authority in deciding whether to execute somebody or imprison them or enslave them or even exile criminals. And in John's case, maybe because of his age, maybe for other reasons, John was exiled to an island as punishment instead of being executed or facing some other punishment. And it was on this island of Patmos that John had a vision from Jesus. Now, a couple of other important things to know about the context of Revelation. First of all, Christians were facing persecution at the time it was written. So in Rome, emperors were considered deities. They were considered gods, but usually only after they died. But in the case of some emperors, they claimed to be gods while they were still alive. And Domitian was one of those emperors. He was the emperor while Revelation was written, like we just talked about. So Domitian demanded worship. And Rome could use worship of the emperor as sort of a test of loyalty to 
the state to Rome. And so Domitian persecuted Christians and all philosophers or religions that would not worship him. Everyone who he viewed as hostile to himself and his authority. So as you read this book, remember, this is a letter written to believers in the first century. And remember what they're going through. The leader of the empire that they live in is demanding worship. And their lives are at stake if they don't worship him. Now, why do I share this with you? Why do I remind you of this? I think it's important for us to remember that the primary purpose of Revelation is to encourage and strengthen those who are being persecuted, not to give us every little detail about the end of the world. It doesn't mean Revelation doesn't give us truths about the end of the world, about the end times, because it does. But the point isn't to give us a detailed timeline. The point is to encourage and strengthen suffering Christians. So keep that in mind as we go through this book. Another thing to remember is that a lot of people approach this book with what's known as newspaper eschatology, which maybe that term is becoming somewhat outdated. I don't know how many people even read the newspaper anymore. Maybe a more appropriate term nowadays is Twitter eschatology or some other social media. But regardless, what it means is that many people interpret Revelation through current events. But there are a couple of problems with that. First of all, if we interpret Revelation through current events, it it means that our interpretation is continually changing through time. Because if you think about it, if every generation interprets Revelation through what's going on in the world currently, it means we have to keep reinterpreting it. Now, I do believe that we're nearing the end times, that we're closer to the end times than not. But we still can't use newspaper events or social media events to direct our interpretation of Revelation. So what should we do instead? We should realize that Revelation is rooted in the Old Testament. Scholars estimate that Revelation quotes or references or alludes to the Old Testament over 500 times. Over 500 times. That's far more than any other book in the New Testament. So almost all of the imagery and the symbols that John uses in this book find their origin somewhere in the Old Testament. So if we really want to understand Revelation and its different symbols, we need to put down the newspaper or put down our phones and we need to pick up the Old Testament. Revelation does have something to tell us about the future, but it's rooted in the Old Testament, not in current events. So just wanted to to make that point. Now, another important point before we get into the book itself, we mentioned how apocalyptic literature contains many different symbols. So the extensive use of symbols and symbolism in this book should create a humility in us as interpreters. Understand that many great Christians have differed in the details of how to interpret Revelation. So I want to encourage you as we go through this, Understand you're not going to get all the answers, okay? I don't have all the answers. Nobody has all the answers. But keep the big picture in mind. Focus on the major truths that we can learn from this book. And remember, this is written to encourage suffering Christians not to answer every little question that we have about the end times. So with that in mind, with that little preface, let's get into the letter itself. Now, John starts his letter with an introduction, as most letters start with. And he also starts with a vision of the risen Christ. 
And right off the bat, we see symbolic language everywhere in this description of Jesus. Now, this language doesn't mean that Jesus actually has a a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth, for example. But all of these symbols represent some sort of reality. So his clothes represent royal priesthood. His white hair represents eternity, eternal age. His flaming eyes represent his all-knowing gaze. His bronze-like feet represent his authoritative judgment. The two-edged sword coming from his mouth represents his word. And his shining face represents the glory of his deity. So again, there's a lot of symbolism here. But let this passage drive you to worship. We worship the risen king. And when he returns a second time, he's not coming as a baby. He's coming as the all-knowing, all-powerful, conquering king. Now, an important point in this first chapter, Jesus tells John to write down what he sees on a scroll and to send it to seven churches. Then he lists those seven churches. These seven churches are the audience of this letter. Now, obviously, this letter is written for the benefit of all Christians, but these seven churches are the direct recipients of this letter. Now, an interesting note here, if you remember back in Acts chapter 19, we talked about how the Apostle Paul spent two years in Ephesus. And it it says that he would daily enter the lecture halls and he would teach about Jesus. And he would bring disciples with him and he would train them, he would send them out. And this continued to happen to the point where it says that all the residents of Asia Minor heard the word of the Lord. So Paul's co-workers were being sent out and they were planting churches in the regions surrounding Ephesus. This is likely when these seven churches of Revelation were started. Because if you notice, one of these churches is Ephesus. And one thing that's significant is these seven cities listed in Revelation were seven of the eight most prominent cities in Asia Minor, meaning that messages to these seven churches would eventually affect all of the churches in the entire province province of Asia Minor. So just something to keep in mind, these are seven prominent cities in this region. So speaking of these seven churches, in the next section of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, Jesus tells John to write letters to each of these churches. And I've always thought when I read this, put yourself in their shoes. Imagine having Jesus evaluate your church through a letter. Talk about intimidating. I mean, sometimes churches will have a, a district superintendent or some sort of higher up from within the denomination come out and, and give their feedback. But imagine having Jesus write your church a letter. And that's what he does to these seven churches. So Jesus has John write to the angel of each church. So if you remember back in chapter 1, verse 20, John sees seven stars. And he tells us these seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, these angels may have some sort of role in guarding or protecting the churches and or representing them in heaven. But I think it's interesting that Jesus holds these seven stars or these seven angels in his hand. Why is that significant? Well, ultimately, the protection of each church is in the hands of the Son of Man, of Jesus Christ. So Jesus evaluates each of these churches, and it's kind of a mixed bag of results, some good, some bad, but overall it seems like there's a general spiritual decline going on. And keep in mind that he's writing to suffering Christians. So you're going to see calls to endurance, calls to perseverance. That's why. 
because his audience is suffering. And just as a general structure, when Jesus writes a letter to these churches, he'll, he'll give kind of these I know statements, I know your works. He shows his detailed knowledge of, of each church. He's reminding them, I am all-knowing. I am the all-knowing one. And then he commends the churches for what they're doing right. He does that for five of the churches. Then he rebukes the churches for what they're not doing right. That happens also for five of the churches. And then he calls them to repent and to persevere in the midst of adversity. So that's just the general outline of each letter. But I, I need to mention something here. Some people have suggested that these seven churches represent the different eras of church history. And I think that's an interesting thought. I think it's a nice thought, but there's really no textual evidence to suggest that's what's going on here. And in fact, I think the text suggests the opposite because these letters are full of local and specific references for each church. It appears he's actually literally writing to seven first century churches, but together they give a message that's relevant to all churches through all of time. Okay, so I don't see there being some sort of progression through the different church ages, but together they do give us a message that's relevant for all churches and really for all believers. Now, for the sake of time, we're not going to get into these letters in detail, but I do encourage you to, to really slow down as you read these letters and consider how you can apply their message to your own life. Then we come to chapter 4, and this is really foundational for the rest of the book, chapters 4 and 5. So before John gets into anything else or before he starts getting into the end times, John is suddenly catapulted into heaven in chapter 4 and to the throne room of God specifically. And we see all sorts of symbolic language here. John is almost grasping for straws trying to describe what he sees. You're going to see he uses the word appearance a couple of times. He sees one who had the appearance of jasper and carnelian stone. Understand this is not a literal description. Okay, God's glory is beyond description. And there are flashes of lightning and peals of thunder signifying the awesomeness of God and, and the terror of being in his presence. Our God isn't just some old guy in the sky. He's the all-powerful creator of the universe. And when somebody is in his direct presence, they fall flat on their faces. And then we see there are 24 elders around the throne. So who are these elders? Well, there are a few different thoughts on this. Some people see a parallel here to Israel's priests who served in 24 divisions. Some say the number 24 represents the 12 tribes of Israel combined with the 12 apostles. So representing the Old Testament and New Testament saints. In other words, This would represent the entire people of God. And other people say that these 24 elders are actually angels because they don't seem to include themselves among the redeemed of mankind in chapter 5. But even if these are angels or some sort of spiritual being, they could still be representing the entirety of God's people. Just as the, the seven angels represented the seven churches, these 24 beings could represent the entire people of God. But regardless of their exact identity, these 24 elders are worshiping around the throne with four living creatures. And these are similar to the four living creatures of Ezekiel and the seraphim of Isaiah. Again, Revelation is rooted in 
the Old Testament. And we see all sorts of symbolic language again. We see that the four living creatures have faces like a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. They're probably representing all created beings in some sense. And day and night, they never stop crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and who is to come. And then the elders join in bowing down and praising God. And then in chapter 5, John sees God on his throne holding a scroll with seven seals. And this scroll represents redemptive history and God's purposes for creation. But we see that nobody's worthy to open the scroll. And understand that what is written on the scroll is sealed with seven seals, so it, it won't happen, it won't come to pass unless the seals are broken. But then Jesus Christ, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, comes on the scene. He shows up, and what's interesting is that John hears the word lion, but he looks and he sees a slaughtered lamb standing. So many people expected the Messiah to be a conquering political ruler, but Jesus conquered as a lamb, not as a lion. And it says he was a a slaughtered lamb who's now standing, meaning he's been raised to life. The resurrection is the cornerstone of everything that happens in the book of Revelation. Even though it's not directly mentioned per se, it is the foundation of of everything here. He's the slaughtered lamb who's now standing. You'll see other symbolic language here as well. He has seven horns and seven eyes. Again, this is not a literal description. But horns symbolize strength, and seven is a number of perfection and completeness. So this means that Jesus is all-powerful. And his seven eyes probably symbolize that he's all-knowing. It also says it represents the seven spirits of God. Now, this doesn't mean that God has seven literal spirits. Again, seven is a, a symbolic number. It represents the fullness, the completeness of the Holy Spirit present with Jesus. So Jesus, the lamb, he takes the scroll and the living creatures and the elders worship the lamb. They, they present the prayers of the saints as they proclaim, worthy is the lamb to take the scroll and open its seals. And then we see that this breaks out into all of creation rejoicing. Now, I want to point out a couple of things here. First of all, notice it says that Jesus purchased people from every tribe and language and people and nation. This is a fulfillment of Jesus' great commission in Matthew 28 to make disciples of all nations. Understand, Jesus wasn't talking about political nations. He was talking about all the people groups of the world, every tribe and language and people and nation. And going even further back, this is a fulfillment of God's promise to bring a worldwide blessing through Abraham. So people from every tribe and tongue are going to gather in unity and worship around the throne. We get to be part of making that happen. And notice that the prayers of the saints are presented here as well. In other words, the prayers of the saints are part of bringing about the fulfillment of God's purposes, God's end-time purposes. Our prayers matter. God has ordained that he will accomplish his purposes through prayer. So I want to encourage you today and remind you that your prayers matter. Keep praying. God responds. He acts in response to our prayers. Now, I want to just step back here as we wrap up today. These are some of my favorite chapters in Scripture, Revelation 4 and 5. 
and they are crucial to the rest of the book of Revelation. John is reminding us and reminding his first century readers who are suffering, he reminds us all that God is still on his throne and his purposes will be accomplished. In the midst of all the chaos and the evil in the world, when it feels like everything is falling apart, our God is still all-powerful and all-knowing. He's still the only one worthy to be praised. So I want to encourage you. Find hope. Be amazed by our God. No matter what you're going through, marvel at our God's beauty and majesty and power. And know that God is still in control. You're in the hands of the great I am of the universe. That doesn't mean life on this earth is going to be easy. But for those who endure, eternal rewards are waiting. So find hope. And let's follow the example of the book of Revelation and join the chorus of worship and praise around God's throne. (laughs) 